The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our service of Berean Baptist Church. Um, I am never one to uh, shy away from controversy, and I don't think that this is terribly controversial of a topic, but after, after you hear what I have to say, you may disagree, you may have questions, but save the tomatoes and talk to me after if you have any questions. I'm sure... There's several that will. Let me ask you a rhetorical question. What is the singular requirement for entrance into God's kingdom? Now, if you ask people that question, you'll get many different answers. But what does the Bible say? The Bible says you must be born again. You must be made a new creation. But what does that mean? We understand the terms born again, born from above, born of God, to mean in the ultimate sense, salvation. That is the general sense of the meaning of this term, born again. But there is also a specific sense in time of when we are made alive spiritually. So again, I want to talk to you about the doctrine of regeneration. Now, unfortunately, This amazing doctrine has often been reduced to the idea that man activates the grace of God by a decision he makes. Now, as John MacArthur has well said, every sermon is an argument. Now, what he meant by that is that it's an opportunity to make a case, to convince you of something. Now, I don't think I need to make this case to most of the people that are here, but today's sermon will be me making the case for God's sovereign power alone in bringing every sinner to salvation. And to illustrate why God must act independently to bring about spiritual birth. Now, what is regeneration? Here's my working definition. You're going to see in the PowerPoint, which is the first slide, it's cut off about halfway. That's the only one that's, uh, that, that's like that. But regeneration... Regeneration is a supernatural work of God that delivers a person from spiritual death to spiritual life. It enables them to believe the gospel and trust in Christ for salvation. And it does not require the cooperation of man to achieve. Now, I can imagine many of you thinking, what about repentance? And of course, repentance from sin is crucial. Everyone who is saved by God must repent. However, in order for anyone to repent, they must first be enlightened. They must first be regenerated. This enlightenment is a function of God's will, not man's. So with a better understanding of this doctrine, I I believe we'll see a few things. One of them is how it influences our relationship with God how we think about him, and the position of authority he has in our lives. It will also influence us in how we communicate the gospel to people. 
if you think that regeneration originates in God, you will present the gospel without prejudice to people, regardless of their situation, knowing that God must first work in them in order for them to believe. Conversely, if you think a person's reception of the gospel is based on their will, you may well employ techniques or methods based on what you think is the most, will be most advantageous to bring about the desired outcome. That motivation very well may distort the gospel. Now, I'm not accusing anybody of this. It's simply an observation. In the end, every sinner has the same basic problem. They need to be made alive spiritually before they can respond in repentance and faith. So with that, I pose another question. Which is the truer statement? In the majority of churches today, people believe, A, that regeneration is the result of believing. Regeneration is the result of believing. Or B, one is first regenerated, and their regeneration will result in them believing. In other words, is regeneration the catalyst of faith, or is it, is, or is it the result of faith? Note, it has to be stipulated, it's very important to understand, that regeneration is not salvation. But the result of regeneration always is. The one leads to the other. It's a package. The purpose of God regenerating you is to bring you to faith in Christ. Unfortunately, what many Christians believe is that regeneration is the result of believing, not the cause. Now, it must also be stipulated that when it comes to the issue of genuine saving faith, all Christians agree that one must trust in Jesus, Jesus Christ and that he atoned for their sins personally. Regardless of one's view of the order of salvation, all Christians agree that we are saved by grace through faith alone. However, having a correct understanding of genuine saving faith should not preclude us from also having a correct understanding of how one arrives there. That is an important detail. Does God simply make salvation possible, hoping that people will make the right decision and believe? Or does he actually save his people from their sins? Does he ordain the ends as well as the means? So in the spiritual realm, what are the means? How are we enabled to believe? Or do we even need to be enabled? How do we overcome How do we love as we should? How do we persevere? Believing, overcoming, loving, and perseverance is all preceded by regeneration. They have to be. No spiritual activity originates in anyone who is dead in sin. God must act first. And I'll show you why. Scripture tells us in 2 Timothy 2.15, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. In other words, diligent study of the word of God to come 
to an accurate interpretation. Not only has diligent study been neglected, reducing the Christian church to an institution seeking to meet the emotional needs of people rather than equipping them with the truth of God's word, which is the best tool to meet every need, isn't it? We don't need programs. What we need is the truth of the Bible. The Bible is the ultimate problem-solving device. We are also living in a time where many churches feel it is too divisive to study doctrines that were historically taught and defended. Unfortunately, so much of what drives modern churches today is the fear of offending people and driving them away. Now, we don't want to offend people. That is not our goal. We have to remember, though, that the gospel is an offense to the unregenerate mind. However, if we are communicating God's word in the way he intended, it will always be attractive to God's people. Ultimately, we do not have to worry because those that desire superficial Christianity will prove what scripture says. Namely, they were never with us. 1 John 2.19 Now back to our definition, regeneration, the sovereign act of God, whereby he brings a person from spiritual death to spiritual life. My best scripture for this is found in Titus chapter 3, verse 5, where we read, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. My first text today is going to be in 1 John 5.1. 1 John 5.1. And we read, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. So 1 John 5.1 has to do with the relationship of the one believing and their having been born of God. So which comes first? The believing part or the being born of God part? Again, most people believe, they would say, that being born of God, being born again, is the result of believing. I believe, then I'm born again. I'm going to challenge this. Let me show you why. First of all, some understanding of the original languages and some knowledge of basic grammatical principles is critical. Now, you don't have to be a scholar. I'm certainly not. But having some understanding of these principles is indispensable if you are going to have a correct interpretation. Let me just say this. I am particularly grateful to be able to draw on the knowledge of good Bible teachers like John MacArthur like John Murray, who I'll quote later, like Dr. James White. I'm actually indebted to Dr. White because his teaching on 1 John has helped me develop this sermon and is the driver in my understanding of the Greek words and grammatical constructions we'll be studying today. I'm also especially thankful for our own pastor who has been indispensable in giving me a more comprehensive understanding of what the Bible is teaching on this subject, this and many others. So I want to give proper credit where it's due. 
for many of the concepts I'm sharing with you today. This is not a result of my brilliance, as I'm sure many of you can attest. These are concepts that I've learned from godly men who have spent a lifetime devoted to the study of Scripture. Very thankful for them. You'll see as we continue. So, back to 1 John 5, 1. The Greek word for believe is pistuo, to believe, to entrust. So we see that whosoever believeth in 1 John 5, 1 in Greek is, looks like this, pas, ho, pistuon. Go ahead. Thank you. All or everyone believing. Now, the verb to believe is what's, in co- what's called the present tense participle, meaning ongoing faith or continuing abiding faith. That is the nature of our faith. It's durable. It lasts. So, you have pistuo, again, the Greek word for belief, which is in the present tense participle, and you couple that with another Greek word, gigenetai, which is the perfect tense verb for born. Why is the perfect tense important? It's because perfect tenses refer to completed actions in the past that have continuing results into the present. So, if you have a perfect tense verb, born, which carries the meaning of past action with present results, and since the participle believing is in the present tense, it means, this is what it means, it means that being born of God in the past results in faith in the present. Now that was a mouthful, but what does it all mean? It means we can say that everyone believing has already been born of God. Not that in order to be born of God, we must first believe. Not that we first believe and as a result, we are born of God. No. We believe because we have been born of God. Because we have been regenerated. Now, if you're skeptical, hang on. I'll have two additional references that will emphasize this point later on. But what do we see in 1 John 5.1? What is Jesus teaching us specifically? Why is it critical that we are born of God or regenerated before we believe? It's critical because we must understand that we make no decisions in the spiritual realm until we have been born of God. Being born of God is a supernatural, sovereign act of God alone on the dead human heart. Christ illustrates this perfectly in John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Feel free to turn with me. In John chapter 3, we read in the third verse, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. 
That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say unto thee, ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Now it's interesting that Jesus uses the term, the two terms, born of water and the Spirit in verse 5. What did he mean? Now first Jesus refers to water. Now some believe that water in this verse refers to physical birth. The breaking of the amniotic membrane in the mother's womb. We are all familiar with the term, her water broke. And the result is the child's physical birth. How many people think that that's what that, that water means that? Or have you thought about it? I don't think that being born of water means physical birth. Now I'll tell you why in a second. But first let me provide a little background on Nicodemus to understand why Jesus would be talking with him in this way. Nicodemus was one of a select group of approximately 6,000 individuals in Israel, the Pharisees. He was a very well-educated man, as Jesus refers to him as master in chapter 3, verse 10. He is the only Pharisee recorded in the four Gospels to have been saved. We see this demonstrated when he comes to Joseph with Joseph of Arimathea to take the body of Jesus in John chapter 19, verse 39. Something that would have been suicidal, both professionally and physically, for a man in his position. Only a true disciple would take such a risk. Now, back to the water. Nicodemus, being a Pharisee, would have been very well acquainted with the Old Testament. And he would have known that water was a symbol of purification. So the first thought here that Nicodemus would clearly understand is that one must be purified before he could enter the kingdom of God. Now Jesus, obviously knowing Nicodemus' background perfectly in his omniscience, knew that this reference to water and its symbolic meaning for the cleansing work of the Spirit would not be lost on him. We see two scriptures that Nicodemus would have surely been very well acquainted with. The first one is in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 3. For, uh, for I will pour water upon him that is thirsty, and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed, and my blessing upon thy, my, thine offspring. I think the one that best illustrates this idea is found in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27, where we read, Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your filthiness, and from all all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away your stony heart, the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean." This is not talking about taking a bath. We see that this is not talking about real water at all. This is a metaphor using water as a symbol for purification. We can also see the reference to the term washing of regeneration that we read previously in Titus chapter 3, verse 5. This is a physical symbol 
of a spiritual reality. Now, Jesus uses an important term, born of the Spirit. Now, John Murray, who is a professor of systematic theology at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, wrote in his book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, quote, quote, there can be no question, but born of the Spirit refers to birth of the Holy Spirit. It is a birth, therefore, of divine and supernatural character, and it is such because the Holy Spirit is the source and agent of it. It needs to be particularly noted what is implied in this familiar expression, born of the Spirit. It is not quite certain whether the exact meaning of the word rendered born is that of begetting or bearing. According to the usage of the New Testament, it could be either. If it is the former, then the thought is patterned after the action of the Father in human procreation. The man begets. If it is the latter, then the thought is patterned after the action of the mother. The woman bears. The child is born of the mother. End quote. Murray's point is that it is not really important which is the most accurate meaning. It makes essentially no difference whether we think of being begotten of the Spirit or born of the Spirit. Either way, we understand that our entrance into the kingdom is entirely dependent on the actions of the Holy Spirit, not us. Here's the parallel. Just as our physical birth was the action of our parents, to which we contributed nothing, likewise, our spiritual birth is the action of the Holy Spirit, to which, again, we contribute nothing. Now, what I am not saying, what I am not saying, is that we are automatons, having our every action orchestrated like a marionette. We do make decisions. However, before we were regenerated, before we were born again, we would have only made decisions based on the strongest desires of our heart. And what is the strongest desire of our heart in our unregenerate state? Only things that satisfy the flesh. Of course we made choices before we were saved, just as we make choices now. The difference is, before regeneration, again, which always leads to salvation, we could, only the, we could only follow the dictates of our fallen nature. That doesn't mean we couldn't do good things or kind things or show altruism. We could do that. But we could not do anything of any spiritual value because we had absolutely no capacity to relate to God in any way. The Bible tells us we had no capacity to seek God or to love him or to serve him. We see that in Romans chapter 3. It was God who gave us perception by his spirit through regeneration to see what we could not see before, namely our bankruptcy and our need. Now, as a result, when our minds were illuminated, we then came most willingly the assessment of our spiritual of our previous spiritual condition is undeniable. We see this in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 2 and 3 where we read wherein 
Time passed. You walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation or manner of life in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. What do natural men do? Why does Ephesians describe us this way? I'll tell you. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, where it says, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Now, before one becomes spiritual, the Bible describes them as natural, non-spiritual, unregenerate. And the Bible makes it very clear that any spiritual activity that one could exercise or initiate, that person never would, because they would consider it foolish. Does it make any sense That someone who considers spiritual things to be foolish would then do something totally contrary and believe in the very thing they considered foolish? Now, excuse the alliteration, but that would be foolish. In fact, let me take it one step further. The Bible describes the natural man as spiritually dead. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 reads, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. You see, God needed to quicken us. God needed to make us alive because we were dead spiritually. Now, the Greek word here for dead is nekros. Nekros really means dead. It means lifeless. It means not able to respond to impulses. Think of words in our common vernacular. Necromancy. That's communications with the dead. Think of necrophilia. I don't want to get too graphic, but that's intimate relations with the dead. Think of necrotic tissue. This is dead tissue. It cannot be reinvigorated by anything we do to it. It has to be cut out so that the good tissue around it can heal. What we have is a picture of a corpse. We were corpses. Now, the argument for those that reject this concept goes something like this. I knew it well. The Holy Spirit stirs something within you, and then you can respond to that prompting. Or they will argue that we were not so alienated, that we were not so alienated from God, that we could not employ something within us in order to turn from our sin and exercise faith in Christ. Now, that is the common counter-argument to what I'm saying. We were diminished. We were sick. We were impaired. We were disabled. But dead? No. Nope. This is the Arminian, semi-Pelagian, synergistic interpretation that I was taught most of my life. Essentially, God and man working together to accomplish salvation. A partnership! You do your part and believe, and then God will do his. 
What the Arminian maintains is that there is no divine decree that will infallibly bring about the salvation of God's elect. And that God's efforts to try to save you is dependent ultimately upon your autonomous act of faith. The decision you make. But let me ask you, if God supplies the exact same grace to every person, and one person is saved and the other is not, then what is the distinction? It's you. It's your autonomous act that makes the difference. That is the implication. You were just a tiny bit better than those other sinners. This is what I was told the Bible taught. God had given me a choice, and I could trust in Christ when I was ready. God would then complete the salvation process by applying Christ's atoning work on my behalf. But this doesn't follow because what one fails to consider is that even faith is one of those good things we are incapable of manufacturing in the depravity of our sinful flesh. Now, God anticipated the argument by saying in Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 23, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then may ye also do good that are accustomed to do evil. Now, I'll come back to the issue of faith in a second. But as we continue, I want to go back one more time to what we saw in 1 John 5.1. What do we have in this text? What we have is the use of a perfect tense verb. Again, what do perfect tense verbs indicate? Perfect tenses refer to completed actions in the past that have abiding results in the present. So the action has been completed. Regeneration. And the continuing results of that action carry into the present time, resulting in repentance and the ongoing abiding faith of the believer. It means that being born of God preceded saving faith. Now, going back to my earlier comment on faith, even our faith is a gift given to us by God. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 tells us, For by grace are ye saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. How do we know that even faith is not of ourselves, not produced within us? Because we know that faith is a good thing, right? Faith is a good thing. Again, our spiritual condition before regeneration was hopeless. There was nothing good within us. Romans chapter 17 verse 8 or, I'm sorry Romans chapter 7 verse 18 says for I know that in me that is in my flesh what does it say dwelleth no good thing for to will is present with me but how to perform that which is good I find not notice notice the passage does not deny that we have a will. It is just a will that is incapable of doing good. Again, it is only when we have been illuminated by the Holy Spirit in regeneration that we can respond in repentance and faith, put our trust in Christ for salvation, and then 
live a life that is pleasing to God. Now that is our first observation. But believe it or not, I'm almost done. I always, when I hear people make points and they say that's the first observation, and I'm like, you're already 25 minutes in, I kind of go, oh my goodness, we're going to be here forever. But you won't, you won't. I'm almost done. I want to show you two additional examples of this same grammatical form that we saw in 1 John 5, 1, in two other texts to help us understand what is being communicated. So our second observation is found in 1 John 2, 29. And in 1 John 2, 29, we read, If ye know that he is righteous, you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. We have the same verbal parallel. In the Greek, it, it looks like this. Pas, ho, poion. Everyone doing righteousness. Again, you have the same perfect tense verb, gegenetai, born of him. So, in 1 John 5, 1, you have everyone believing is born of him. In 1 John 2.29, you have everyone doing righteousness is born of him. Now, what's the point? We know that doing righteousness does not cause us to be born again, right? We know that we do righteousness because we are born again. If by believing we cause ourselves to be born again, and that is again the synergistic Arminian interpretation of 1 John 5.1, then if we are going to be consistent, we would have to say in 1 John 2.29, we become born again by doing acts of righteousness. We become born again by doing acts of righteousness. But that cannot be right. Because in 1 John 5.1, we believe because we are born of God. In 1 John 2.29, we do righteousness because we are born of God. What causes us to believe? Regeneration. What causes us to do righteousness? Regeneration. Those that deny the absolute sovereignty of God in salvation will never argue that being born again must precede works of righteousness, as we see in 1 John 2.29. But they will suspend a consistent biblical hermeneutic when it comes to 1 John 5.1 because their tradition has taught them that believing is an act of their libertarian free will. They can believe that. They are still as much a Christian as any of us, just saying it's not consistent. Now, that's our second observation. My third reference <clears throat> is in 1 John 4 7. 1 John 4 7, <clears throat> where we read, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God. And knoweth God. Once again, we have the same verbal parallel. 
the present tense participle, everyone loving, in Greek is pas, ha, agapon. The same Greek word for born, gigenetai, born of God. Here's the point. If we take the common interpretation of 1 John 5.1, which makes the present tense participle the grounds of being born of God, then not only do we do righteousness to be born of God, now we love to be born of God. Now I think that any honest Christian reflecting on this would affirm that the truth is we love him because he first loved us. 1 John 4.19 What we see clearly is that we have the same verbal parallels in all these verses. We believe because we have been born of God. 1 John 5.1 We do righteousness because we have been born of God. 1 John 2.29 We love because we have been born of God. 1 John 4.7 now, why, pe- why don't people believe this? I don't think it's intentional or deliberate. I think it's because people have never really studied this. They've never considered the verb tenses. They've never looked at the verbal parallels. They've never considered the original languages. Most, pe- most believers probably don't even think about it. The common accepted understanding is that one day a person makes the decision to have faith in Christ. Now, they've heard the gospel, but whether they decide to believe and trust Christ for salvation or reject him resides completely in them. Now, most will affirm that God does play some role, but to what extent is never really defined. They then repent of their sins, and then they are regenerated. Then they're born again. When we see what 1 John is teaching us, can we not conclude that regeneration preceding faith is the answer to where our faith originates? And if we evaluate how Scripture illustrates the parallel between our physical birth and our spiritual birth, can't we see that neither is dependent on any action we perform? Let me ask you, if God does it all, Why is that a problem? What's wrong with that? God did it all. I'm fine with that. Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 16 says it very succinctly. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then... It is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. The unfortunate thing is that believers who have been taught to think a certain way often are unwilling to examine their traditions. This is the way I was taught. End of story. Well, maybe you were incorrectly taught. I was. Why are people so resistant to the idea that God elects whom he wants to become his child? 
Is it so unreasonable to believe that he would overcome all resistance that we would ever offer? Think about it. We all agree, we all agree, we are dependent on Christ to do works of righteousness. Yeah? We are dependent on Christ to love him and others. We are dependent on Christ to overcome our sin nature on a daily basis in order to live a life pleasing to God, right? So, we understand that these virtues can only be exercised because the Holy Spirit dwells within us and empowers us to do them. Is that true? That is the only way we have any hope, any hope at all, of living the Christian life. But then people say in this area of belief, no, that's all mine. That's all mine. Think about it. Listen carefully. If you are dependent on Christ to live the Christian life, why wouldn't you be dependent on Christ to initiate the Christian life? Surely the the latter is more difficult. The scriptures say, study, in 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We should always be willing to study God's word and examine and evaluate our beliefs and traditions in light of it. We have to understand that God does it all. He regenerates He gives the gift of faith whereby we can humbly repent and receive forgiveness for our sins. Then we can truly say, we can truly say, to God be all the glory. We can also preach the gospel knowing that salvation is of the Lord. He does it all. Finally, we can echo the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, where we read that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. May God give us the victory in all things, and may he receive all the glory. Let us pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, Sovereign Lord, Almighty God, we thank you that you have delivered us from from sin, from the cares of this world, from, from being under under Satan, under oppression, Father, that you've liberated our minds. We pray, Lord, that you'll help us as we go forward to live for you, Lord, that we won't be fearful, that we won't be afraid, that you'll give us strength and give us wisdom, that we'll love you as we should. Pray for all of those that were here today, Lord. I pray that what they heard was a blessing to them and that what was said was honoring to you. And we pray these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Brian Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.